Today is Wednesday, January the 17th, 2024. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing... Computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. The Personal Computer Show had for many years been a call-in talk show. The pandemic-causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener call-in format enabled us to know what technology issues were on the minds of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live. That's L-I-V-E. Streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Google Groups is ending support for Usenet to combat SPAN. Google has officially announced it's ceasing support for Usenet groups on its Google Groups platform, a move partly attributed to the platform's increased struggle with spam content. The upcoming changes will take effect on February 22, 2024, after which users can no longer post, subscribe, or view new Usenet content through Google Groups. However, Historical Usenet content posted before this cutoff date will remain accessible for viewing and searching on the platform. Google says the change is primarily due to a decline in text-based Usenet groups, with the platform mainly being used to share files or to post spam. Usenet is now commonly used to share copyrighted content, such as video games, applications, movies, and TV shows. Over the last several years, legitimate activity in text-based Usenet groups has declined significantly because users have moved to more modern technologies and formats such as social media and web-based forums, explains a support document about the upcoming change. Much of the content being disseminated via Usenet today is binary, that is to say, non-text file sharing, which Google Group does not support as well as spam. This change also marks the end of Google's network news transfer protocol, that's the NNTP, server services, including its content pairing with other NNTP servers. As a result, Google will not support the dissemination of new Usenet content or its exchange with other servers. Importantly, this update will not affect non-Usenet content on Google Groups which includes the vast majority of user and organization-created groups currently active on the platform. Google offers help to those actively using Usenet content. 
For those actively using Usenet content, Google has provided guidance or transitioning to alternative platforms. Users are advised to find a new Usenet client and a public Usenet server, saying that there are numerous free and paid options available. Google suggests conducting web searches for how do I find a Usenet text client and public NNTP servers to assist in this transition. Since Usenet is a distributed system, there is no requirement for data migration. All Usenet content currently accessible on Google Groups should be available on the new servers selected by users, and once a new client and server are chosen, users can simply reselect their preferred groups to continue their engagement with Usenet content. In its statement, Google also highlighted the declining legitimate activity on text-based Usenet groups, attributing this trend to the shift of users towards modern communications technologies such as social media and web-based forums. More people are canceling their streaming services as companies hike prices. Cord cutting refers to the act of canceling a cable TV subscription due to the increasing cost of cable subscriptions. Many people have turned to TV streaming services as an alternative to traditional cable TV. However, it is worth noting that TV streaming service providers have also been raising their prices, sometimes to levels that match or even exceed those of cable TV subscriptions. The rise of cord cutting can be attributed to several factors, including the desire for more affordable options, the availability of streaming services, that offer a wide range of content and the flexibility to watch shows and movies on various devices. The convenience and customization options provided by streaming services have attracted a significant number of subscribers. However, many streaming providers have raised subscription prices over the past year. The percentage of customers canceling multiple streaming subscriptions has increased. Streaming companies have been raising prices, cracking down on account sharing, and introducing ads. 24% of users canceled three or more streaming subscriptions over the past two years. As content streaming companies continue to raise their prices and crack down on account sharing, a bigger percentage of customers have been canceling their subscriptions. The volume of people in the United States nixing Subscriptions to major streaming services rose to 6.3% in November of 2023 from 5.1% a year earlier, according to data from subscription analytic provider Antenna. And nearly one quarter, 24% of U.S. subscribers canceled at least three of those subscriptions over the past two years, as of November. That's up from 15% in November of 2021. Netflix said in May of 2023 that it would start charging U.S. subscribers an extra $8 to add additional users who live outside their household to their account and raise prices for both its lowest-tier ad-free plan and its premium plan just a few months ago. HBO raised its max subscription prices last January. Amazon Prime Video recently announced that it would be introducing ads which subscribers would have to pay an additional $3 a month to avoid. Apple raised the price 
of an Apple TV Plus subscription by $3 in October, and Disney raised the price for both Disney Plus and Hulu back in August. All those little increases add up. Many consumers, it seems, are saving where they can. This doesn't necessarily mean that those subscriptions stay canceled, though. Some users, whom Antenna refers to as serial churners, repeatedly subscribe and cancel streaming accounts rather than maintaining continuous subscriptions. Google settles class action lawsuit over Chrome incognito mode tracking. Google has agreed to settle a class action lawsuit filed in 2020 that accused the company of continuing to track, collect, and identify users' browsing data in real time even after they had opened a new incognito window. The lawsuit alleged that Google violated wiretapping laws and was filed by one resident from Florida and two residents from California. The plaintiffs claimed that Google Analytics, cookies, and apps allowed the company to track their activity even when they set Google Chrome to incognito mode or other browsers to private browsing mode. The lawsuit sought at least $5 billion in damages and covered millions of Google users since June 1, 2016. However, the settlement terms have not been disclosed. Lawyers of both Google and the consumers involved in the lawsuit have reached a preliminary settlement and expect to present a formal settlement for court approval by February 24, 2024. The plaintiffs also allege that websites using Google Analytics and Google Ad Manager, collected information from browsers in incognito mode, including device data, IP addresses, and web page content. They further claim that Google associated information about their incognito browsing with their existing user profiles, turning Google into an unaccountable trove of information. U.S. District Judge Yvonne Gonzalez Rogers in Oakland, California, put the scheduled trial on hold after the preliminary settlement was reached. The judge had previously rejected Google's attempt to have the case dismissed, stating that it was an open question whether Google had made a legally binding promise not to collect users' data when they browse in private mode. Google initially tried to have the lawsuit dismissed based on a warning that displayed when users turned on incognito mode, alerting them that their activity might still be visible to websites they visit. A judge rejected that request for a summary judgment in August, saying that it never told users that data collection would continue while they were in incognito. Plaintiffs said letting Google had an unaccountable trove of information from learning about what they seek. Microsoft Products and Services Renamed with AI Word is that Microsoft is working on a next-generation version of Windows with an AI-powered desktop interface. But AI is already here on Windows 11 in a variety of forms. Many of these AI features were announced long ago and have slowly trickled out to Windows PCs. Computers with neural processing units, that's NPUs, are hitting the market and widespread NPUs will make it possible to run AI models directly on consumer hardware. Copilot is the most obvious gen 
AI feature on Windows 11, and it's the most significant one. The Copilot sidebar offers access to a GPT-4-based large language model on your desktop, complete with built-in Bing search. You can click the Copilot icon on the taskbar or press Windows Plus C to open it. Copilot is even coming to Windows 10 PCs. Microsoft is in the process of rolling out on Windows 10 PCs as we speak, though it will take several months for the gradual process to finish. Microsoft has been incorporating AI into its products and services to enhance user experience. Microsoft has been in the forefront of incorporating artificial intelligence into its products and services to enhance user experience. The company believes that AI is the defining technology of our time and has been investing in cutting-edge research in AI. In February of last year, Microsoft launched the new Bing, an AI-enhanced web search experience that supports users by summarizing web search results and providing a chat experience. Users can also generate creative content such as poems, jokes, stories, and with Bing Image Creator, images. In November of last year, Microsoft renamed the new Bing to Copilot in Bing. Copilot in Bing is an AI-enhanced web search experience that connects users with relevant search results, reviews results from across the web to find and summarize answers users are looking for, helps users refine their research to get answers with a chat experience, and sparks creativity by helping users create content. Microsoft has also been offering Azure AI services, which are cloud-based artificial intelligence services that help developers build cognitive intelligence into applications without having direct AI or data science skills or knowledge. Windows on non-Qualcomm ARM chips. Windows on ARM exclusivity with Qualcomm may be a thing of the past, as Qualcomm's agreement with Microsoft expires this year. Opening the doors for other manufacturers such as AMD or NVIDIA. Qualcomm's exclusivity agreement with Microsoft to provide CPUs for Windows on ARM PCs has been rumored to expire in 2024. The end of the exclusivity agreement means Windows on ARM PCs can start to use non-Qualcomm ARM chips in the coming years. Microsoft chose Qualcomm as its partner for Windows on ARM PCs in 2016, and ever since, Qualcomm has been the only company to make ARM chips for Windows devices. This was never framed as an exclusivity agreement, but after a few years it became pretty clear that this was the case, as Qualcomm is the only company to have made ARM CPUs for Windows on ARM in the eight years since the partnership was announced. There has been significant speculation on the end date for this deal. Reuters claimed the agreement would end this year in its report about AMD and NVIDIA making ARM CPUs for Windows. The exact date the exclusivity arrangement ends isn't precise, but it will seemingly be gone by the start of 2025. The end of Qualcomm will mean other companies can make ARM CPUs for laptops, and if Reuters is correct, 
Those CPUs will be coming from AMD and NVIDIA, though neither company has specifically made ARM CPUs for laptops or desktops, AMD and NVIDIA seem poised for it. AMD has said it's ready to make ARM CPUs if needed, while NVIDIA has experience in ARM with its great server CPUs. For its part, Intel doesn't feel threatened by the prospect of a new generation of ARM chips for PCs, though the company's confidence hasn't always been well-founded. Development of the first RISC computer. In computer science, a reduced instruction set computer, which is RISC or RISC, is a computer architecture designed to simplify the individual instructions given to the computer to accomplish tasks. Compared to the instructions given to a complex instruction set computer, CISC, a RISC computer might require more instructions, more code, in order to accomplish a task because the individual instructions are written in simpler code. The goal is to offset the need to process more instructions by increasing the speed of each instruction, in particular by implementing an instruction pipeline which may be simpler to achieve given simpler instructions. The key operational concept of the RISC computer is that each instruction performs only one function. For example, copy a value from memory to a register. The first RISC or reduced instruction set computer was developed by IBM in the 1970s. The development of the first RISC computer was a result of accidental discoveries made during the development of a special purpose phone switch processor. Initially, IBM was working on a mainframe computer designed to be a phone switch. However, the project was eventually abandoned in favor of a general purpose processor. During the development of the special purpose phone switch processor, IBM removed many instructions and performed some testing on the incomplete platform to see how it performed as a general purpose computer. They found that by eliminating all but a few instructions and running those without a microcode layer, the processor's performance gains were much greater than expected with speeds up to three times faster than comparable hardware. The major design philosophy at the time was to use a large amount of instructions to do specific tasks within the processor. When designing the special purpose phone switch processor, IBM removed many of these instructions and then, after the project was canceled, performed some testing on the incomplete platform to see how it performed as a general purpose computer. They found that by eliminating all but a few instructions and running those without a microcode layer, the processor performance gains were much more than they would have expected at up to three times as fast for comparable hardware. This accidental discovery led to the development of the first RISC processor, which eventually became the IBM 801. The major design's philosophy behind the first RISC computer was to use a small number of instructions to perform specific tasks within the processor. By simplifying the instruction set and running instructions without a microcode layer, the first RISC processor achieved significant performance improvement. The development of the first RISC computer not only paved the way for RISC platforms like ARM and RISC-V or RISC-V, but also helped improve the performance 
of complex instruction set computer, CISC platforms, the risk architecture focused on simplicity and efficiency influenced the design of subsequent processors, leading to performance gains in both RISC and CISC systems. RISC processors, including the first RISC computer, have a simplified instruction set that aims to increase the speed of each instruction by reducing complexity. Each instruction in the RISC computer performs only one function, such as copying a value from memory to a register. RISC computers typically have many high-speed general-purpose registers and use a load-store architecture. The first RISC computer and subsequent RISC processors have had a significant impact on the field of computer architecture. They have been widely used in various devices, including smartphones, tablets, printers, and data center systems, due to their performance and ease of use. The development of the first RISC computer led to significant performance improvement and influenced the design of subsequent processors, paving the way for RISC platforms like ARM and RISC-V. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, the workplace, and how they intertwine, except I'm not talking about computers this week. I am in the middle of a four-part series in regards to quiet quitting, quiet firing, loud quitting, and quiet hiring. These are all very much on the work side uh, and having nothing to do with the IT side of what I usually talk about. But they exist. They are out there. And they are things that, as we start off the a, a year, we need to be thinking about this. We need to start thinking about all of the things that are around us. So in this case, loud quitting. And yes, this really gets into uh, the resenteeism, this gets into that really a, a lot of malicious compliance, but it, it becomes more of a vocal malicious compliance. And I put the emphasis here on malicious compliance. I want you to think about how I just said that. Malicious compliance. It's, it's being loud. It's saying, this is all I'm going to do, and I'm not going to do anything more. And you're out of your mind if you uh, think I'm going to go on off and do that. I've always taken a different approach. <laughs> my my own personal approach has been: you want me to you want me to sweep the floors? Fine. Yeah. I, I mean, you're taking me away from more valuable things, but hey, you're the boss. I'll do what I have to. Now, this loud quitting is really a it's a bad issue. It is a morale issue that needs to be addressed, and it's got to be addressed in a number of ways. Of course, sometimes it's a matter of the negative nature of some people, and we're going to talk about what we can do to address that here in a moment. I want to take you back in time. I worked with with a guy. Uh, we had this was a company I worked for, and we had a number of workers, and I had to interact with this one particular person who was miserable. We'll just refer to him as M. Uh, M was absolutely horribly. Uh, just the most negative person I could ever think of in that company, in that role. And, you know, he just went through life absolutely unhappy and angry at everything. 
and he 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 did all kinds of different things that were pushbacks. Oddly enough, he continued getting the work done, but he brought everybody down. He actually scared some of his coworkers because he made some not so veiled threats, not directly at them, but about what he wanted to happen in in life, and it got it got scary. It got really really bad. Look, loud quitting. We we know who the loud quitter is. It's that person, and we all have seen somebody like that. It's that person who, oh, I hate working here. They they make no secret of it. They are ready to leave. Why they don't leave, I don't know. Why they don't channel some of that energy into a different direction, I don't know. If you're one of those people, or if you know one of these people, maybe you can encourage them to do this. If you're one of those people, you know, if you don't like working here, there's a thousand other jobs out there. Go on out. And there are people who do this. This is another term, rage applying. They go on out and they get, they say, I'll teach my former, I'll teach my employer the, you know, the, my value. I'm going to find a new job and leave them high and dry. You know what? If your morale is that low, if you are struggling at your job you don't like who you're working with. You don't like the situations. You've got two options. You can you can softly, gently work with your boss, or yes, you can find a new job. Rage applying is something that exists. It's out there. It's channeling that energy that's in your body into finding that new job. Now, sometimes that rage applying gets a little bit too far. You're applying to you know a hundred different jobs. Uh, just to find an exit, and maybe that maybe that's what you got to do. Like there is an upside. You may actually get what you're looking for in the form of your vocal attitude gets some of the improvements in the workplace. I mean, we have seen this. This is in the form of like union protests and, and so much more. You can see that yes, people by complaining have gotten somewhere, but. At the same time, if you're not getting anywhere, if you're at a company and they're still not following your ideas of how to make the perfect workplace, find a new job. If you're rage applying, yeah, you may get a better job. If you're applying, gently applying, if you are looking for someplace better, then great. I mean, there are there are downsides to loud quitting. In the form of, yes, you may get new opportunities in the form of, yes, you're put on the unemployment line. Now you've got many more opportunities to look for a new job. And that that can be chaotic. That can be something you don't want to deal with. So, look, it, it exists out there. It's It's something that, as an employer, maybe we need to be going through and we need to be saying to the people who are being very loud and breaking down the morale that's so hard to build up, maybe just saying, hey, look, not not sending them to the door. <laughs> I mean, you can if they if they get that bad, but say, look, um, I want to help you find a position that you are happy in. I want to find something that that is going to resolve the situation you've got right now we've got this in the way and that in the way and this in the way and that in the way if you can bear with us and you can tone it down maybe we can solve these problems and we can move forward or better yet i can give you a reference i can help you find a new job look i'm here for you 
right now for your career path inside the company as well as outside the company and find ways to leverage that and to help them find a place where they're going to be happy. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Unplug these devices to reduce your electric bill when not in use. Some devices drain considerable energy even when they're not powered on. Pulling the cord on certain appliances can generate savings on electricity. Do you have a printer? Coffee maker? TV? Some home appliances will keep using energy when not in use or even if they're not powered on. The energy that gets used from these devices while not in active use is often called standby power. This continual use of power drives up your monthly electric bill. There's a simple solution though. Just unplug the devices when you aren't using them. It seems counterintuitive to unplug appliances. After all, they're off. So why would you be sucking up energy? The fact is your appliances actually still use energy even when they are turned off but still plugged in, according to energy.gov. Whether the devices switch off or in standby mode, some of the worst offenders are a device that may still use energy in the form of lights or other displays showing the device is off, computers that were simply put into sleep mode. Then there's charges that still draw power even if the device is not connected. Media players that continually draw power, especially ones that still might scan for updates in the background. Phones with displays that show when not in active use, like cordless phones. New smart home appliances like refrigerators, washers and dryers that have always-on displays. Internet connectivity and electronic controls. Many people may be shocked to realize how much standby power can add up. Standby power accounts for 5 to 10% of residential energy use, according to the U.S. Department of Energy. However, how much you save could depend on how many devices you use and your habits with them. An educational experiment from Colorado State University found that a combo radio CD player, tape player, used 4 watts continually whether it was in use or not. Unplugging it when not in use would save 100 times as much power during the lifetime of the device. A study published by the Natural Resource Defense Council estimate that the cost of always-on devices at up to $165 per household per year on average. Buying a smart plug can help you conserve energy by controlling the power on virtually any device you plugged in. How to optimize your standby power? The first step is, of course, to unplug anything that is not actively in use or not used often. One example of devices that could easily be unplugged include TVs and set-top boxes in guest rooms. It's also generally easy to unplug media players when not in use, like a radio or CD player. When you take your device off its charger, it can also help to get into the habit of unplugging that charge as well. You might also be surprised how many devices we have plugged in that we don't even use anymore. Examples include old wireless phones, old media players, or lamps that are more decorative than functional. However, unplugging and replugging in everything can get, well, 
tedious, especially if your outlets are in hard-to-reach places. If the outlet is inaccessible, it will be hard to keep up, so you can also set up ways to make the process of cutting phantom load more automatic. You can plug devices into surge protectors. That way, one flick of a power switch button can turn off multiple devices. You can also get timers to plug devices into or smart outlets so that you can automate when the power is connected to a device. For instance, you might set the time for the TV's power so it's only connected during peak use times like evenings or weekends. You can also look into getting Star Energy products. Many of these products are rated to have lower standby power use than products that are not rated by Energy Star. Ageism remains a challenge in the tech industry. While ageism remains a challenge in the tech industry, there have been instances where job postings explicitly state that they hire older workers. The industry is gradually recognizing the value that experienced individuals can bring, and efforts are being made to provide opportunities for older workers to transition into tech careers. The tech industry has been known to struggle with ageism in hiring, with older workers often facing challenges in finding employment. However, there have been instances where job postings specifically highlight the inclusion of older workers. One such example is a job listing for a software developer role that went viral for advertising, we do not discriminate based on age. Experience matters. We hire older people. This listing receives significant attention because the tech industry tends to skew heavily toward younger individuals. While the tech industry may have negative stereotypes about older adults and a drive to keep salary costs down, experts argue that many companies overlook the benefits that older tech workers experience can bring to the bottom line. Indeed, a job search site found that millennials tend to be more interested in tech jobs than their older counterparts. But older tech workers have valuable skills that contribute to the industry. However, ageism and the perception that older workers can't learn new skills can hinder their opportunities in the tech sector. It's worth noting that the tech industry's age bias is not limited to job postings. Older tech workers often face challenges in job security and respect as they get older. The industry tends to idolize younger individuals, and people in their 30s and 40s may also experience difficulties. CEOs over a certain age may face constant questions about retirement. Despite these challenges, there are opportunities for older workers in the tech industry. Some tech companies actively target older workers in their recruitment strategies, posting jobs at senior centers, churches, and websites geared towards older workers. Additionally, the booming technology sector needs experienced people for a wide range of non-technical jobs. Organizations like Generation Singapore have been retraining older workers for new careers in tech, providing them with the skills needed for entry-level positions in the industry. If you're old and in tech, you might be thinking, I'll never be able to get a job in tech if I apply today. You look at job descriptions, 
and think you're missing loads of the skills that are listed. However, there are plenty of job descriptions that are ridiculous laundry lists. Nobody has 100% of the items in the job description. Those lists are what you would call aspirational. When it comes to advertising for older tech people, there are a few factors to consider. While the tech industry tends to skew towards younger individuals, there are companies that recognize the value of hiring older workers and actively seek to include them in their workforce. Some companies explicitly state that they do not discriminate based on age and emphasize that experience matters. These jobs posting tend to attract old job seekers who may have faced ageism in the industry. Advertisers recognize the spending power of older individuals and target them through various digital marketing tactics. This includes engaging them through proven strategies and channels that capture their attention and promote their products or services. The AARP, formerly the American Association of Retired Persons, has highlighted that older individuals represent a significant market for technology. They are projected to spend billions of dollars on tech products, including gadgets for themselves and their families. Some companies have been recognized for the friendliness towards older workers. These companies prioritize creating an inclusive environment and value the contributions of older employees. It is important to note that while there are companies actively targeting older tech people, ageism can still be prevalent in the industry. Efforts to support older advertising employees and combat age discrimination have emerged, but this is still progress to be made. Overall, companies that recognize the value of older tech workers can benefit from their experience, skills, and the unique perspectives they bring to the table. By actively seeking to include older individuals in their workforce and marketing efforts, companies can tap into a valuable demographic and contribute to a more diverse and inclusive industry. The growth of the older workforce, numbering roughly 11 million today. The older workforce has nearly quadrupled in size since the mid-1980s. The increase is driven in part by the growth of the 65 and older population. The bulk of the baby boom generation has now reached that threshold. Pew Research Center analysis has shown the growth in the older workforce is driven by more than sheer numbers. The share of older adults holding a job today is much greater than in the mid-1980s. Some 19% of adults ages 65 and older are employed today. In 1987, only 11% of older adults were working. Today's share is similar to that of the early 1960s when 18% of older Americans work. As the employment rate among older adults has gradually risen since the 1990s, employment among younger workers has followed a different pattern. Job holding among 25 to 64-year-olds peaked at 77% in 2000 and fell during the Great Recession and has rebounded somewhat since then. Employment among men ages 25 to 54 has been sinking for decades, according to the Council of Economic Advisors. Until 2000, this was offset by rising employment among women. Women 
employment rates peaked around 2000, so overall job holding among the younger population has not returned to its 2000 level. Workers ages 75 and older are the fastest growing age group in the workforce, more than quadrupling in size since 1964. Some 9% of the adults ages 75 and older are employed today, about twice the share who were working in 1987, which was then 4%. Today's older workers are different from older workers of the past. Today's older workers are as likely as younger ones to have a four-year college degree. They are working more hours on average than in previous decades. Today, 62% of older workers are working full-time, compared with 47% in 1987. They're more likely to have a four-year college degree than in the past. Some 44% of older workers today have a bachelor's degree or more education, compared with 18% in 1987. That puts them about on par with workers ages 25 to 64. They're more likely than in previous decades to be receiving employer-provided benefits such as pension plans and health insurance. The same does not hold true for younger workers whose access to these employer-provided benefits has decreased in recent decades. For example, among workers ages 65 and older, 36% now have the option to participate in an employer or union-sponsored retirement plan, either an old-style pension or a 401k-type plan, up from 33% in 1987. Only 41% of younger workers have access to this type of retirement plan at work, down from 55% in 1987. Older adults are healthier and less likely to have a disability than in the past, making it possible to extend their working lives. Policy changes have discouraged early retirement. Changes to the Social Security system, which raised the age that workers receive their full retirement benefits from 65 to 67. The nature of jobs has changed. Older workers strongly prefer jobs that entail less strenuous physical activity and allow for greater independence and more flexible work schedules. Recent research shows that many occupations, on average, have become more age-friendly since 1990, none of which involve heavy physical exertion. Retired older workers are much more likely to work part-time than their non-retired counterparts, and many older workers, 25% of them, are receiving income from retirement accounts, pension plans, or annuities, not including Social Security. Older workers are more than twice as likely as younger workers to be self-employed. 23% are, compared with 10% of workers ages 25 to 64. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics at the BOS projections show that the role of older workers will continue to grow over the next decade. Older adults are projected to account for 57% of the labor force growth over this period. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you're always a a source for different things we should be keeping an eye out for purchasing. 
Or getting his gifts. Don't hey, forget getting, that. getting his gifts, or huh, huh. occasionally stuff we should avoid. Which yeah, I also, I also yeah. appreciate that. Uh, in, this, in this case, this yeah. is one of those delightful examples of a product that doesn't quite handle what you wanted it to do, but did it so well at other things that it turned out to be a thrill. Okay. The INU, that's I-N-I-U, B63 USB power bank can store and deliver 25,000 milliamp hours. Okay. Uh, to do it credit, that comes out to 25 amp hours. So a full charge can deliver up to 93 watt hours. That's the math, folks. It has about the same footprint as a non-jumbo smartphone, but it's three to five times thicker. Okay. Easy little thing, okay? Uh, as you might expect for something with that big a battery, think about the size of one of those foil-wrapped slabs of brand-name cream cheese. That's about the size of it, but okay. it's still okay right. for air travel. Now, the end sports three ports. On the left, a USB-C port, up to 65 watts of PD3 compatible power. Mm -hmm. The center is a second USB-C port delivering 30 watts and PD. The right is a USB-A quick charge for a QC4 port, good for up to 22 and a half watts. Mm -hmm. And it's well designed with protection against surges, overheating, short circuits, and more. Yes, there's a percentage charge display and some beefy USB cables and a carry pouch plus a little slide-out phone holder on the side. But there's one specification here that I draw to your attention. Okay. Its operating temperature range spans 32 to 140 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm sorry, you broke up. 148? No, 32 to 104 degrees. Oh, 104. Like, okay. 148. We're going out to Death Valley and we're going to charge our phones out in the middle yeah. of nowhere. Yes, go on. Sorry. And you can store it from minus 4 to 140. So okay. storing it in what you got at home is probably okay, sure, but running sure. it in extreme weather is probably not. Uh, so... As a way to keep my gear charged when I'm out and about and don't want to be leashed to a power outlet, you should have seen how fast it charged at the same time as fast charging my phone. It's a keeper. Okay. The NU nice. Safe Charger Pro BI-B63, 65-watt, 25,000 milliamp power bank. It's about 60 bucks on Amazon. A good value. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good value. I like that. And now, Eaton. Yes. And their trip light brand. Uh, I got in a model GC1000L portable 1000 watt mm -hmm. lithium iron phosphate generator and charger, meaning another beefy battery box with lots of useful inputs, AC, DC, and solar, even more useful outputs, AC, yeah. DC, and a lineup of a dozen USB ports. Eight of those are 5031 amp USB-A ports. Two are USB-A ports with quick charge three. Two are USB-C ports with quick charge three. Okay. And it has a couple of top side handles. So it's 35 pounds. Don't feel that heavy. It's rated to run from 14 to 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, I'm not, but it, it is. The AC power <laughs> output is rated 1,000 watts with a capacity of 1,048 watt hours. Remember, the math isn't linear because few devices consume their full rated load continuously. Okay. Now, I wouldn't recommend using it for unattended UPS-style AC pass-through mode because... Too strong a momentary startup power demand could trip its protection circuits, and you need to manually intervene to overcome that. You don't want to babysit a UPS, right? So yeah, yeah. 
Think of it as a transportable generator with lots of electrical outputs and one, well, none of the carbon uh, monoxide concerns of, of a gas generator. Uh, this thing, and by the way, my neighbor just borrowed it for a, a tailgate. And yeah. it, kept his, it kept his crock pot going with uh, potato soup, I believe it was, Yeah. For, for three hours. And when he returned it to me, it was only half depleted. Okay. Uh, the 1,000-watt light uh, GC1000L generator charger list for about 200 bucks. Okay. All right. It, it's a beaut. Uh, got about a minute? Uh, yeah, a little bit more than that. Uh, almost two. Uh, let's go to Klein Tools. Got in some care love, packages. Love Klein Tools. All right. Yes. <laughs> Haven't heard of from, All right. Go on. Got a folding insulation cutter. It's it's more like a thin five and a quarter inch serrated saw blade folded into a six and a half inch handle. Okay. We got a three sixteenth flat slot screwdriver with a difference. This is gorgeous. It's got a springy twin head that fits in the screw slot, holds onto it there, mm -hmm. and a sliding collar. So when you push the sliding collar down toward the screw, it gets into that slot and really holds onto the screw to make it really easy okay. to get it in without dropping off. Uh, and where was the other? Oh, I got something else from him and I can't find it. That, that, <laughs> that, that's that. Uh, you know, I, I get that. You know, it, it, I, I do enjoy a lot of these things that you bring to us. You know, growing up, uh, I always enjoyed uh, – uh, looking at a, a number of the catalogs, a lot of the tech catalogs. Uh, Lafayette, and, and, Allied, Radio Shack. Yeah, uh, uh, DAC Industries was was the, one, yeah. uh, the other one, but yeah, Radio Shack. Uh, uh, I wish I had some of those. I understand you were responsible for some of the things that uh, uh, that we saw in those catalogs and mailers um, and and whatnot. But. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I it, it, I have a friend who has a bookshelf full of old catalogs. Really? Uh, uh, yeah. 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 Uh, uh, oh. <laughs> but he uses them for pictures on his Christmas card. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a little different. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. And that's Marty Winston. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect meets Thursday, February the 1st. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, February the 2nd. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. And their website is acgnj.org. The King's Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, February the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. And they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn, the telephone number is 347-278-7320. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, February the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is bcug.com. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, February the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. 
online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group will meet Friday, February the 9th, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.